Now, the irony is we are more connected in this world than we have ever been before. So our, our global village increases in size and so the world decreases. Places are easier to get to. You can, in a matter of seconds, speak to anyone on the other side of the world. With Facebook or email, you can send a message and it pops onto their phone within seconds. With Skype or FaceTime, you can see them face-to-face and talk and communicate. We're more connected than we have ever been before, but we're more lonely than we've ever been before. The poet John Donne in the 17th century wrote a famous poem, No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. And and yet despite our our connectivity, despite the links that we have with other people, increasingly we're living as islands. We're lonely. There was an article on the BBC website recently claiming that studies have shown that consistently one in ten of us are lonely. But reports by the Mental Health Foundation have, have shown recently that loneliness among young people is more and more and more common. The article cited various possible reasons for this sort of trend. The first was kind of geographical distance. We don't necessarily or normally even live near the rest of our family anymore when we move away to university and when we stay there perhaps or we find jobs where we can. Uh, Marriage breakdown, more and more and more people choosing to not get married, choosing to live alone. Multiple caring responsibilities. So we have an increasingly large, older generation. So we're more thinly spread. We're less able to form relationships because we're looking after parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles. Perhaps the longer working hours that just go with modern life. It's not just nine to five anymore. It's eight to six or seven to seven. And it even claims that social networking sites are part of the problem. So if we catch up with people on Facebook, and it's only on Facebook, that doesn't really work. In an important sense, that's not a real relationship. That's not incarnational, face-to-face, flesh-to-flesh. You can't hug somebody over Facebook. We're more connected than ever before, but we're more lonely If that's you here today, you can put the mask on and wear the smile. Come chat to me afterwards. Because you see, if you're a Christian here this evening, that's not the way it's meant to be. As we look at Paul, we see a man who knew he needed others to, to survive and to thrive, to do his ministry. Paul wasn't the prickly lone ranger, as he's often pointed out as being. No, no, Paul was a team player. And it's interesting, when you come to the end of Paul's letters, often people think and talk as if there's kind of a bit of a fizzling out going on. So we just had this this masterpiece of the Gospel, the Gospel in Romans, this letter, as Peter said at the very beginning, that has changed so many people. Lives have been transformed as they've read Romans, as they've realised what the Gospel means, what grace is about. Fifteen chapters, beautiful, mind-boggling theology, and then we get this bizarre, slightly embarrassing practicalities in people in chapter 16. Is it just a bit of sort of fizzling out? 
I think if that's how we feel, we've missed the point. We've missed the point because these verses, these practicalities, these people, they, they show us what the theology is for. They show us what it looks like day to day in the flesh. This is where the rubber hits the road. This is the outworking of 15 chapters of theology. Every day. The gospel demands that we live it out. Demands action. And if you were here this morning, or over there this morning in Proverbs 1, we thought about that a bit, how we can, how we can hear God's word, we can hear the Bible. We open it up, we read it, we take in the information, but it just becomes a theory that we kind of file away and we become experts in the gospel, but we don't really live the gospel. And if we hear it but don't really live it, then I'm not really sure we've actually heard it. It seems to me each time we open up the scriptures, God is calling us into a deeper relationship with him, a a deeper relationship with those around us. And if we go home tonight with a whole bunch of new facts and think, well, I've nailed Romans 16, then you've missed the point of what it's about. I've missed the point. I've failed in my job as I open these verses up to you. Chapter 16 shows the outworking of the gospel, the gospel with flesh on. And we see that it demands two things of us. Two things. The gospel demands diverse difference and it demands loving labouring. It's diverse difference and loving labouring. Enjoying the alliteration. And we say thanks to Alex for reading the verses for us. But it can't have escaped your notice. This was just a whole list of people. People we don't really know. People we can do the sort of archaeology and the history and the commentators have theories as to who these guys were and stuff. But it is just a whole list of people. So Phoebe arrives with the letter in verse 1. She seems to be the the male woman who's bringing the letter to Rome with her. And he commends her to them. But then you've got all kinds of people that he lists. This enormous diversity of this church in Rome. And frankly, we ought to expect that. If you've been here from the beginning in Romans, you will remember that one of Paul's big themes is this is God's plan to rescue a people for himself. To rescue a people from everywhere for himself. Jews and Gentiles now united together in the body of Christ. And brilliantly, here in Romans 16, we get that theory, Jews and Gentiles, and he puts names on these people. Real people. Real households. Real diversity. There's a variety of diversity there. There's diversity in ethnicity. So the commentators get excited because you, you can look at the names and you can work out the kinds of people that he's talking about. The Roman church was beautifully made up of folk from all kinds of places, a variety of cultures. Look around the church in Rome on a Sunday and you would see this ethnic diversity of Rome reflected in the people sat in church. Jew and Gentile united by the gospel. Greek and Latin and Roman, united by the gospel. That's one of my um, 
my dreams for Magdalen Road Church, that we might be, with God's help, as best we can, a church that reflects the area that God has put us in. So that we might be diverse in backgrounds and skin colour and culture, diverse in story, and yet united by the gospel of the Lord Jesus. God's plan is to unite a people around himself, around the cross, around his son, proclaiming now to a watching world what the gospel can do, but pointing ahead as well to a world when, well, a day when every multitude that no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That's, that's the end game. But now, we just point ahead to that, imperfectly, but as best we can, seeking to unite diversity around the gospel of Jesus. So there's this diversity in ethnicity. Secondly, if I can put it like this, there's this diversity in gender. I know you can't get that diverse in terms of gender, but you see what I mean. There are male names here, blokes, men are listed. But there's also, in one sense, a staggering number of women's names. (coughs) Women who, as we'll see in a bit, were actively involved in ministry. And I say it's staggering... It's staggering because Paul is often given a hard time and fingers are wagged at him as being a misogynist. He, he hated women, people say. But read Romans 16 and that is just not the case. I was chatting to um, Adam Carpenter uh, later, earlier this week and he was saying when people come to him and, and talk about Paul being a misogynist, he opens up Romans 16 with them. Look how Paul valued and loved and cared for these women who were partners in the gospel with him. He is very warm and very thankful for lots of women in these first 16 verses. From a broad spectrum of backgrounds, we'll see in a bit, they are united with him, they are supporting him in his ministry. He is gushing of their ministry. Again, I could list almost embarrassing numbers of women at Magdalen Road without whom the church, in human terms at least, would fold. Think of Kitty, who week by week by week patiently waits for sermon points from a preacher on a Sunday evening to help them pick songs and and often leads in the morning as well. And she's very patient. Think of Mary Guest, who oversees Junior Church. Think of Nick Carpenter, who runs Sunflowers and Buttercups, but then Claire Trenchard and Kitty and others who have slotted in while she's on maternity leave to keep it happening. Think of Rosie Grote, who off her own bat sorts out a cleaning rotor for this place. Think of Rachel Round, who's an incredible evangelist. Think of Hannah and Sarah and Hannah, who start and who organise Aspire so that the women of Magdalen Road can get to know each other better and get to know God better. There's an event at G&D tomorrow evening um, if you'd like to go and meet other women in the church, if you're a woman. Think of Anna Vines or or Amy, who who have been sent by Magdalen Road to go and minister in different parts of the world. And then there are just vast numbers of women who quietly get on with ministry behind the scenes. Faithfully, and in a costly way, meeting up with folk who, perhaps for whom life is difficult. Mourning with those who mourn, rejoicing with those who rejoice. So as Paul writes to this church, notice that the diversity in gender, men and women are partnering with Paul. 
And then there's diversity in social standing. Again, the commentators get excited because they can tell by the names that some of these people, or many of these people actually, were male and female slaves. In some senses, they're from the lowest orders of society. But then sat next to them, you've got Phoebe, who's come from Paul, who's obviously rich, almost certainly a rich businesswoman. In verse 1, she's got a large, generous standing order headed Paul's way each month. And she's been a benefactor to others as well. Where else in the world do you find that kind of diversity with unity? Diversity in ethnicity, in gender, in social standing. Only the gospel can do that kind of work to bring a broken world back together. But it's more than that. It's more than that because these people weren't just sat in church on Sunday. They weren't just acquaintances with one another or with Paul. This was costly. This was real, genuine, challenging commitment to the gospel. So the gospel demands diverse difference. Secondly, it demands loving labouring. You see, if what Paul has said in chapters 1 to 15 of Romans is true, if it's true, then this message is worth putting yourself out for. It's worth late nights. It's worth losing comfort and going without. It's worth sweat and tears and labour. Because if it's God's plan to rescue a broken world, then it's all we've got. There is no plan B. This is it. And so the gospel demands loving, labouring. Firstly, loving. You can see that in the Roman church, there was a warmth there. A warmth in the language that he uses, a warmth in the quality of relationship that he describes. So these aren't just some folk who are in the same club, or some kind of hobby together. They're not just names on a list. But they are people he genuinely loves. So have a look at the warmth of the, the language he uses, the partnership, verse 1 and 14 and 15. He, he's talking about brothers and sisters. This is a new family that people are a part of. Or verse 13, Rufus's mother has been a mother to him. Or verse 5, Epenetus. Verse 8, Ampliatus. Verse 9, Stachys. And verse 14, Persis. They're all described as dear friends. He loves these people. You see, the Gospel won't let us be in a room of strangers. The gospel won't let us be a room of strangers if we're church together. It demands family. It demands that we're in a partnership. It's very striking. It's why to be lonely in church, in one sense, is very, very sad. Because it just shouldn't be like that. The gospel's family... Do you feel like you're kind of on the fringes of things or or you're not really a part of the family? Well, if you feel like you're on the fringe or if you feel like it's not a family, then in one sense you've missed out on the richness of the Christian life. The reality of being a community together. Practically, I'd urge you to come along on a Sunday morning. There are about three or four times as many people who come on a Sunday morning and they're all pretty friendly. Or perhaps come for food beforehand at six o'clock. 
perhaps come to Aspire tomorrow at G&D's at I think half seven or come on the church weekend away or, or even initiate hospitality. Invite people, invite people over to your house. Did you notice though what the gospel is to mean to these loving people? We kind of skip over it. It's verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now we need to be careful, because I've known some Christians who took this literally, and that was how they greeted each other the whole time. I think the problem there is that they put themselves straight into Rome. Rather than saying, well, what did it mean for the Romans? What did a kiss mean in Roman times? And therefore, what does that mean for us? And translating it into our culture. Now, they just control C, control V, copy, paste. Didn't quite work. What they should have seen was that, that the holy kiss was a warm and culturally appropriate way of greeting people. And then you think, well, how, how do we translate that for us? For us in our church, for us in this city, for us perhaps in this country. For us, that might be a warm handshake. For some parts of the world, it might be a kiss or a hug. For an Eskimo, it might be a nose rub. But it's a culturally appropriate, warm way of greeting people. But in one sense, the point is not so much how does that translate across to us. The point is that your unity is expressed in tangible ways, in warm greetings. This gospel that unites people is lived out in warm relationships. So imagine it, Phoebe turns up with the letter and it's, it's read out, it's read out at perhaps different churches around Rome and that means there are Jews to be greeting Gentiles. There are rich people greeting slaves. There are Romans greeting Greeks. Can you imagine that news spreading around town in Rome? Imagine the neighbours looking in. Did you see that rich landowner? That businessman, he, he kissed and greeted that slave from next door to us. What is going on there? Or, or these Jewish Christians kissing Gentiles. That is the gospel being worked out tangibly. Divisions broken down, genuine love and acceptance and kindness and warmth. This divided humanity that was blown apart at the fall being brought back together. And if that's not us, then maybe we've not quite grasped all that God has done and the family he's called us into. Are there there things next week you can do to better live that out, to model that, to express that warmth and that unity with with Christians? Maybe it is, it's biting the bullet and just saying, I'm going to have folk over. It's going to be messy. I'm not a great cook. I've not done it before, but I'm just going to open the door and invite people to come. Maybe it's writing that letter, or that phone call, or that email, or whatever it is, and just getting in contact with, with a Christian who you, perhaps you've lost contact with. Showing people that you care for them, because the gospel unites you. Think of someone in our home group who um, is a student, is unable to make it often, because they're on funny hours, but they're going to come on Wednesday before they go back home for, for the summer. And we're going to bake her a cake. 
just to show that, that we care about her and that um, we love her and we look forward to seeing her in September. I'm not going to bake the cake, don't worry. Others who are more gifted at baking cakes will. But it's just a way to show a warmth and a genuineness of relationship because the gospel unites people. So there's love involved. The second one is labour. It seems to me that that's the other thing, if you like, that Paul's got on repeat as we read through these first 16 verses. He says that Christian life, it's not easy. It is hard going. And there are real people here who are real examples of that kind of life. So there is Phoebe in verse 1. We've mentioned her before. She is this financial backer. It's an important ministry. It means that other ministries are able to happen. We, we need generous, rich folk to help run things. We encourage everybody, if they're members or if they're regulars here, to, to give. But, but just sometimes people are gifted in that kind of generosity. So Phoebe is a financial backer. There's Priscilla and Aquila in verse 3. They risk their lives for Paul. That's pretty committed, isn't it? To risk your life for him. You see, that, that, that's because the gospel matters and they, they work that out. Verse 7, Andronicus and, and Unia, they have been in prison with Paul. This isn't just a hobby for them. This isn't just a sort of pastime. This is serious. They're prepared to go to prison. Verse 10, greet Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test Sounds like hard times. Persecution. And yet perseverance. And then others as well. Verse 6 and verse 12. So Mary and then Tryphena and Tryphosa, who probably uh, twins. And then Persis, who have all, Paul says, worked hard. You see, he's talked about this already in chapter 12. Church is a place where, where we need everyone to get stuck in because God has given you gifts for everybody else. We need you and you need us and that's the way things work. We belong to each other. It's not a, it's not a trip to the theatre where, where we go in and we have someone on the door and we give our ticket and we go and sit down and we watch the performance and then we leave. No, no, it's a family where we muck in. And we love each other and we help each other. And we get hands dirty and we work hard. This is good for us to hear. It's good for us to hear for a number of reasons. Partly because there's a kind of teaching out there at the moment that seems to almost be down on hard work. Any sort of organised church or effort or structure or labour or hard work and people say, wow... You're being legalistic. And of course there's always the danger of legalism. But that's not because of what we do that we're legalistic. It's why we do what we do that matters. You see, there can be two people doing the exact same hard work. And one does it, they think, to make God pleased with them. For him to bless them. If I do this for God, then he's bound to get me good exam results or, or he's bound to help me with this predicament time. And it's kind of a drinks machine mentality. You, you put your good work in and out comes the goodies, whatever they might be. And the other person does it because he loves God. 
He loves the gospel. Hard work is not the problem. Our motives and our hearts are the problem. If you're here and you aren't a Christian, please don't go away thinking that I'm saying that Christians must work hard, must engage in labour to make God happy with them. No, no, the labour of chapter 16 comes out of chapters 1 to 15. God has poured himself out for us in his Son. And so we pour ourselves out for him in love. So it's good for us to hear this because the culture more generally, at least in Christian circles, can be down on hard work. Secondly, it's good for us to hear this because how easily we doubt, is it worth it? Isn't that you? Maybe it's our friends or our colleagues or our family or that little voice inside us that says, why are you taking this so seriously? You spend your whole time doing church stuff. Is it really worth it? Do they really appreciate you? You cook at six o'clock and hardly anybody comes. You come and clean the building midweek and nobody notices. And by next week it's a mess again. You get up at 6am on a Thursday to come for the prayer meeting. Are you nuts? You give your hard-earned money to them, to the church? You spend your Saturday nights preparing to teach at junior church on a Sunday morning. You give up your free time to prepare home group, to go to music practice. You could be lying in the sun, but you've gone to visit that poorly person. You spend hours writing a sermon that people will forget by the next morning. Are you mad? Do you hear those voices? Is it, is it really worth it? Is it worth living as a Christian? Now Paul says it most definitely is. Because he has spent 15 chapters seeking to persuade us of that. This is God's plan for the world. This is worth it. Living for the gospel, that is not mad. Actually, living for your work is mad. Or living for your money is mad. Or for your friendships or relationships or popularity or new haircuts or whatever it is. Whatever else it is that promises us life. Living for those things is mad. Paul says living for the gospel is the one thing in all of life that is worth living for.